to the message for today, and uh, I'm going to go right into it because uh, there's a lot to cover today, and I'm going to do my very best here. Uh, we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. This is week 6, week 6 of our series on the book of Colossians. So we've gone all the way through from chapter 1, verse 1, and now we are in week 6. We're, we're in the final half here. Chapter 3, verses 18 down to chapter 4, verse 1. Let me read this first, and then we'll, we'll get into it. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I think this is a really interesting passage because, again, when we look at the grand scheme of Colossians so far, just earlier, last week, we saw the lofty language that Paul was using when he was describing true spirituality, in which he said, Christ is all and in all. That's the essence of true Christianity. Christ flowing through you into every part of life. Now, if you remember, the Colossians were having an issue where they began to compartmentalize their relationship with God. It began to become legalistic, and it began to, it began to become a, a list of do's and don'ts. If I do these five things and check these things off on, on my list, then I am being spiritual, and I'm okay with God, and then I can go do whatever else I want with the rest of my life. Paul's saying, no, that is not true spirituality. That is legalism. True, spirit, true spirituality is Christ in all, in all, and, and through you into every part of your life. It's about your character. It's about who you are. It's about putting off the old self with its, its lust and with its anger and, and with its selfishness. And it's about putting on Christ with kindness and love and humility. It's about who you are as a person. Christ is all and in all. So it's interesting that in the next passage, Paul seems to go into what seems like a very mundane, by mundane I don't mean boring, but I mean everyday mundane topic about what happens in a Christian home with wives and husbands and children and, and, and parents and bondservants and masters. It suddenly feels like it, it's taken from this super lofty place and just brought down into what we're supposed to do in the home. Why is that? Well, I think the reason for that is because of this. Any spirituality that is not lived out in your most intimate and personal relationships is a suspect spirituality. I will say that again. Any spirituality 
that is not lived out in your most intimate and personal relationships is a suspect spirituality. Or as the young people nowadays would say, it is sus. It is sus. Am I using that right? Kobe, am I using that right? It's, it's a suspect spirituality. A, a spirituality that doesn't actually come out in your everyday closest relationships where theoretically you're most comfortable, you're most yourself, it's, it's not real. There's a fakeness to it. There's a susness to it. I feel bad saying it. There's a susness to it. I feel weird. There's something wrong with that. F.F. Bruce, the theologian, he said this, it is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest, if at all. In the closest relationships, that's where your Christianity should be seen. That's where it should be coming out. That's where it counts. So today, here, we're going to be looking at three sets of relationships here that Paul goes over. And we're going to be looking at them in order from um, most external to most intimate. And we're going to move in that progression. So we're going to be moving from bondservants and masters. Then we're going to be moving closer to children and parents. And then finally, we're going to be moving to wives and husbands. Three sets of relationships. And these were the relationships within a typical home. So Paul is addressing the Christians of Colossae about what should be happening in their home. So let's get into it. Bondservants and masters. Now, um, this is a really, really uh, interesting thing here because bondservant, what's a bondservant? Um, what, what does that mean? In actually many versions of the Bible, depending on a translation you see, they translate that word slave. Well, why am I using bondservant and why do many translations use the word bondservant? Uh, because it's really, really important because when we think about slavery, Immediately, the question that's going to come to mind as we look at this passage is this. Does the Bible condone slavery? Well, if it does, that's very, very problematic, isn't it? If the Bible will condone slavery, then that's a real, real problem that we may have, that we would have. That's why it's important when we look at the word here. In Greek, the word doulos there, that's the word that is translated bondservant. And the word doulos, actually, what a bondservant is, is more of an indentured servant during that time. It is not a slave in the sense that we typically think about it here in America. Like if you've seen the, the movie 12 Years a Slave, which is um, just a horrific picture of American chattel slavery from uh, not too long ago in our past, uh, that's immediately what comes to mind when we think about slavery. And that type of slavery is something that I believe Christ would have abolished. It is something that God would find utterly um, anathema in terms of how we are supposed to treat people. Uh, in fact, if you look at Exodus 21, God made very clear. He said, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, shall be put to death. So um, what fueled American chattel slavery, uh, many people from Africa being kidnapped and sold into the slave trade to enslavers 
for God, as far as God is concerned, anybody involved in that type of, of criminal enterprise should be executed for what they're doing because you cannot do that to another human being. Um, all, uh, this is why when we think about being a bondservant in the Old Testament, what it was was more akin to indentured servitude. Basically, how it would happen is this. Somebody would have a debt that they needed to pay that they could no longer pay. So what they would say is to the person that they owed the debt to, I don't have the means to be able to pay you what I owe you. I want to pay you with my services, with my labor. And that person would enter into an indentured servitude type of relationship with the master. That's what it was. Do loss indentured servitude, bond servants, it generally was not organized on race. It was organized based on economics. And there would be a Hebrew bond servant serving a Hebrew master in their home. It was very, very common. In fact, when you look at how bond servants were treated in Exodus 21 again, in verse 2, it says, when you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. So the longest period of time that somebody could serve as a doulos, as a bondservant, in ancient Hebrew society was six years. And this, I'm sure, is modeled after God's um, creation uh, event, where he, God worked on six days, making the heavens and, then the earth, and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested. And he said for the people, during the week, the six days you work. On the seventh day, there is a Sabbath and a day of rest. Um, and he modeled it after that. And he said, if somebody works for you for six years, after six years, you need to let him go. That was the longest period of time that somebody could serve as an indentured servant. It's actually, I think, in ways more akin to something like military service. If, uh, if the government pays for your college education and they say, we'll pay for it all, we'll pay for undergrad, uh, I don't know if they'll pay for grad school or something, but then you're going to come and serve us. You belong to the military for, for four years, for six years, something like that. But then once you're done with your service, you are free. It is something more akin to that when it is done properly. Now, let me be clear. The existence of this system of bond servants is not a good thing. It means something has gone very wrong in society. Something has gone wrong in Hebrew society. Because if you look here, it's very interesting. In Deuteronomy 15, God said in the Mosaic Law, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. God is saying, in the land of milk and honey, in the land of Canaan, this, when you go in there, if you obey my voice, if you live the way that I call you to live, there will be no poor among you. If you care for each other, if you love your neighbor as yourself, there will be no poor among you. That was what God wanted for the people of Israel. But now, just a few verses later, he says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. That, that sounds very contradictory 
Um, but, but what's going on here is God is saying, this is how I want you to live. But because I know your sinful nature, because I know how people treat each other, I know that there will be poor in the land. So what he does is he sets up rules and regulations in behalf of the poor, in behalf of the widows and the orphans and the foreigners and the bondservants and people that find themselves in those difficult situations so that they would not be oppressed, so that, that there would be safeguards for them in society. Now, this, this, what, basically what God was doing was he was entering into a world filled with broken and fallen social structures. But what he came to do was to work in the midst of those structures in order to protect those who were oppressed. Um, Gavin Ortland, pastor of First Baptist Church in Ojai, California, he said, put it this way. He said, this makes sense if you think about it. Unless we require that God refrain from giving any instructions or laws to a particular people at a particular time until all societal evil has been removed. What he's saying is, unless we're saying that God needs to make every social structure in this world perfect before he comes and gives us any laws or tells us things to do, that, that he can't come and do anything then, then we basically what we're describing here is heaven. <laughs> is heaven. And he's not going to be able to come and do anything in the midst of our fallen, broken social structures. But what he comes to do is to redeem them. F.F. Um, Bruce, once again, um, he put it this way. He said, the household codes did not set out to abolish or reshape existing social structures, but to Christianize them. They weren't there to abolish them. Kind of like um, Gavin Ortland, he put it this way. He said, if I, if I tell you to go vote, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm saying I fully affirm the American democratic system as the best political system in the world. No, it's just I'm telling you to go vote and make your best choice for somebody that you think can help lead our nation well. Um, or if I tell you to go, you should obey your commanding officer in the military. It doesn't mean I'm saying that everything about the military in America's policy about war and foreign policy and things like that is good and right and laudable. It means that I think if you're in the military, you should obey your commanding officer in that structure. In the same way, as F.F. Bruce said, God is working within the home the, the Colossians, these Christians in their home, he's working to Christianize their social structures there. He's working to change them and, and, and make them a place where the gospel is flowing. Now, this was extremely important because the social structures around the church were anything but um, godly and gospel-oriented. In fact, if you look at Hellenistic culture around them during that time, Aristotle, he said this. He said, a slave meaning a real slave then, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. For them, for the Hellenistic culture around them, if you were a slave, you were not a human being. You were a tool, just like a hammer or a shovel or a hoe or a rake. That's what you are. You're, an, you're a living tool. And if you can't do what I need you to do, they got rid of you or they sold you or it's, you're basically not a human being. That was the view prevalent in that society. And this is why the, the, the Christian perspective, what the gospel does was so crazy. Look at what happens in the book of Philemon, which was a letter written to a man named Philemon, who was a Christian, 
who had a, a bondservant named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away, and then Paul got connected with Onesimus. Onesimus became a Christian, and then Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon, his master. And he wrote this to Philemon. For this, perhaps, is why he, being Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Look at what, what, what is being said here to Philemon. Treat him in the way that you would treat me. Treat him as a brother. He's, he's not just a, a bondservant to you anymore. Now he is a brother in Christ. This is unthinkable. <laughs> unthinkable in the Hellenistic Greek Roman culture of that time that you would treat a slave or an indentured servant and view them in that way. But this is the gospel. So this is probably why I'm sure so many abolitionists were were fervent Christians who, who were there, who looked at chattel slavery and said that this is not how we are to treat people who are made in the image of God. Now, How does the Bible Christianize things here in these verses, in verses 22 to 25? What does Paul say that we should do within this existing social structure in Hebrew society of indentured servitude? What should we do? He says to the bondservants, to the doulos, he says, work hard. Work diligently. Don't just like work hard when your master's around and and sees you and is looking at you. And then once he walks away, just kick it and and not do anything, and just be lazy. He says, no, work hard. And, and in 1 Timothy, Paul said this about, about bondservants as well. He said, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What's Paul saying here? Why work hard if you're a doulos, if you're a bondservant? So that the name of God won't be reviled. So that the non-believing world around you will not look at you and go, did you see that? Did you see his bondservant? When he became a Christian, he suddenly said, I don't need to work anymore. We're brothers now. I'm just going to kick it, and I got it made in the shade with lemonade. Did you see that's what happens when, Christian, when they become Christians? They become lazy. They don't care about paying off their debt. The guy had this huge debt that he incurred. He's not going to pay it back by even working hard. Why? No, nobody's going to become Christian in this household. Nobody. They're lazy. Paul says, don't let the name of God be reviled. Not only that, when your master is a Christian, When you work hard, it also benefits him as well. So you should work especially hard in paying off your debt that you have accrued. He says to the masters, masters, be fair and just. Be fair and just to your bondservants. Be the type of master that when other non-believing bondservants look at the way your bondservant is treated, they would go, they would be so filled with envy that they would say, man, I want to be a bondservant in a Christian home because of how fairly and justly that that the bondservant is treated there. And they were in a society where they saw bondservants being abused left and right. They said, Paul is saying, treat them in such a way 
where other bondservants would long to be in your household as well. Now, brothers and sisters, for us, what does this have to do with us? I think, you know, we're in a society here in America where there is no indentured servitude. I mean, maybe you can make that application to the military if you're paying off your college and kind of stuff like that. But I would say for us, for most of us, the workplace is a proper application where we can apply these principles. Um, This is the place where we spend the majority of our working hours. You spend more time, most of you will spend more time with your coworkers, your waking hours, than you will with your own families. It becomes extremely intimate relationships where people see you in the way that you live. And I would say to the employees, which are kind of like in the place of the bondservant, that we should be employees that bosses love, that work hard, diligently, not just when your boss is looking at you, but works with integrity because we are being paid and that we are going to work hard in order to give the name of Christ a good name so that bosses who are not believers would look at you and say, Christians work with integrity. They work hard. They're honest. They, they don't take credit when it's not deserved, and they own up to their mistakes when they make mistakes. They're kind. They're humble in the team. They're the best team players. They sacrifice of themselves for the sake of the team. Christians are the best employees. I want to hire more believers. I mean, you can't really do that, but anyway, they would really want to in their heart. And likewise, I think employees who are not believers should feel that their Christian bosses are fair and are just, and treat them well, treat them kindly. Um, It doesn't mean that, you know, you say, ah, you don't have to do any work. You expect them to do the work that they're paid for, but you treat them fairly, and you don't throw them under the bus when it's your mistake or, or things like that to be the type of manager that employees will say, I love working for this manager, and oh, by the way, he's a fervent believer in Jesus. I wonder if there is a connection there. Brothers and sisters, you may or may not like the capitalist system of America. You may or may not like your company or your, the place where you work, but you can be a part of infusing that culture there with Christ. You can do that. You spend more time there than you will with your family. You have an incredible opportunity to infuse that culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me move on here to children and parents. The second circle, concentric circle here, as we move closer, Paul said, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And all the parents said, amen, amen. Now, why is this? Why do children have to obey their parents? Now, the, the Bible doesn't talk about this, but I, I, I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. If we were to go back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, and they, they, they had a child, and that child was born, unless Eve gives birth to a full-grown adult person, which would be one long labor and delivery, she's going to give birth to an infant, to a newborn, and that child is going to be born with a newborn mental capacity and need to learn and need to listen to mom and dad. And I'm sure that if they did not sin and they were still in the garden, mom and dad would have needed to tell the child, look, little Timmy, that tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. God told us not to eat from it. Any other tree you can eat from, they would have had to instruct their children 
And that's why children are to obey their parents. Now, I think the really exciting thing about this is that the message here for children, for kids, is that when you obey your parents, even at times if you don't want to, if everything in your heart is telling you no, the amazing thing is that when you do that, it says that you are pleasing the Lord. So in your obedience to your parents, there is something even beyond just your parents that you are submitting to God's design for creation, and you are honoring and pleasing God, and God would look at you, and I'm sure God would say this sometimes, I know that that was very difficult. I know that that was not what you wanted, but I am pleased at your obedience to your parents. Children's obedience has a cosmic significance. To the parents, it says fathers, and and here it can be fathers or mothers, the application to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The word there, provoke, is synonymous with uh, uh, exasperate, uh, with embitter, to make your children bitter so that at the end of the day, they become discouraged. Now, isn't it interesting how all the things that Paul could have said, he said, don't embitter your kids. Don't exasperate them. Don't provoke them to the point where they just become discouraged and they say, what's the point? Now, what that says to me is that that probably was happening a good amount during that time. So I think that this is a really important message for parents as well, to be wise and thoughtful of how we raise our children and how we raise them up in the Lord. It means that we need to be wise and understand that growing and maturing is a process. I remember, um, you know, the terrible twos, as any parent will remember. Most kids, when they're two, they're called the terrible twos because they go buck wild. There are meltdowns left and right, tantrums and everything like that. And I remember Christina and I once, you know, uh, we were looking in a book and, and it was saying, the next time your two-year-old melts down and has a tantrum, that's, and it's completely unreasonable. Look at him or her and say, what are you, two years old? And then you will go, oh, yeah, she is two years old. And, and, and what I, the point of that is that there's understanding that's required on the part of parents that maturity is a process as well in our children and that we need patience and we need wisdom in order not to discourage them in the place where they are. Perhaps it means we need to gauge our own expectations. Maybe we're expecting perfection or expecting the things that society uh, expects. I, I think many of us probably in this room have that experience ourselves where, where you look back and you feel like when you were growing up, performance, it, most often in grades and school, you, what school you got into, things like that, performance was more important to your parents than you being a beloved daughter or son. I'm sure many of us have experienced that and felt that before. And it has led to maybe even embitterment, maybe even long-term distrust of authority, and even a projection onto God of feeling like, God, I'm just here to perform before you, which leads to burnout and a joyless relationship with God, the type of legalistic thing that Paul railed against earlier in the book of Colossians. Parents, perhaps... As parents, we need to reevaluate our goals and, and to be honest with ourselves. Is, it, are, is our goal really to raise our children in the Lord? 
Is that the most important thing? Or have we possibly let the world's standards of success creep in and we've syncretized it with the Bible's definition of what it means to be a successful parent? Things that we should consider. Thirdly, we move into the most intimate of the concentric circles uh, between the relationship in marriage between wives and husbands. Here it says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is a, this is a passage that is, is very difficult nowadays in, in our modern 21st century America, especially here in the, in the Bay Area, West Coast here. And, and because, you know, when we read words like submit, we, we were like, we're like, oh, what, what do we think about when we think submit? You think like mixed martial arts, right? Somebody's got somebody in an arm bar and the other person's like, okay, okay, I, I submit, I submit, I give up. That's immediately what comes to mind. And we think about relationships that are one-sided in marriage and abusive. And we go, who would want anything to do with that? Now, I think it's really important. First, what I want to lay out is that Christianity's effect on marriage was massive in ancient times. Just like it was, it was massively, massive in its effect upon the relationship uh, of the doulos, it was, it was crazy um, reformational, and the impact was unbelievable upon marriage back in those days as well. This is why Scottish theologian William Barclay, he said this, no one reading this passage, in this passage he means Ephesians 5, which was also talking about husbands and wives, a similar passage which we'll look at too later. He said, no one reading this passage in the 20th century can fully realize how great it is. The reason for that is because so much of what we take for granted today about the equal value and worth of women in society had its roots in the revolution that Christianity brought into the ancient world. Things that we take granted for granted today were due to the Christianizing effect of the gospel and of what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women. For example, if we go back to the time that Colossians was written, in, in uh, 2,000 years ago, there were multiple cultures that Paul was writing to. There was the Hebrew culture of, of his day and age, and there was also the Greek Hellenistic culture around them. And these were cultures in which women had very limited, if any, rights at all, including the wives. Rabbi um, Hillel, one of the most, Hillel the Elder, one of the most influential rabbis of that time, he said that about this, he said this about a husband. He said, he may divorce her, his wife, even due to a minor issue. For example, because she burned or oversalted his dish, as it is stated, because he has found some unseemly matter in her, meaning that he found any type of shortcoming in her. This is in the Talmud. If, if, if your wife made the dish too salty, that was grounds for divorce. An understandable, oh, of course, of course you can divorce your wife if she can't cook well and she made it too salty. Um, rabbi Akiva, the other uh, really influential rabbi at that time, also in the Talmud, in the same section, Gittin 98, he said, he may divorce her even if he found another woman who is better looking than her and wishes to marry her which is very ironic when you look at this portrait of Rabbi Akiva. Somebody swipe left, right? And it comes to pass, if she finds no favor in his eyes, Deuteronomy 24, 
verse 1. This was, this was an obvious abuse of what Deuteronomy stated. That's not what Deuteronomy was about, but this was the state of, of a Hebrew wife in those times. The Greek Hellenistic culture around them, not any better. In fact, worse. Uh, Demosthenes, the Greek statesman and orator, he said this, describing Greek Hellenistic culture at the time. He said, we have courtesans for our pleasure. Courtesans are prostitutes for the wealthy and the elite, basically. We have courtesans for our pleasure, concubines for daily cohabitation, and wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for our household affairs. This was the state of Greek culture back then, and the Greek Hellenistic culture was dominant in the Roman world, and the Roman Empire was the most massive empire in the world. This was the predominant culture of the time. A wife in ancient Greek culture could not expect to have a real relationship with her husband. That's not where her husband got companionship. A wife ran the home, took care of the kids. A husband was expected to find companionship elsewhere. That was what the culture was like. This was so completely different from what the Bible and the gospel were teaching about how a husband was to love his wife, how she was to be his genuine companion. Christianity completely changed the face of what the marriage institution looked like in the past 2,000 years. Now, we can ask this, though, and, and, and this is a good question, and if you um, are following along astutely, there's a good question that can be asked here, and it's this. If the existence of bondservants was a feature of the culture at the time and not God's design, can't the same be true about marriage? Now, this is a very good question. The question basically is saying, you know, if, if, if indentured servitude was like not a great system and it's something that God was trying to Christianize and it wasn't a part of his design and we can do away with it over time, then can't we say the same thing about um, what was happening here in marriage? Not that we do away with marriage, but that with the wife submitting to the husband and the husband is loving the wife. Can't we, okay, husband loving the wife, go on, love the wife. But the wife submitting to the husband, that's the part we have a really difficult time with. Can't, can't we say that this is something that can also pass away as well? And that's a really legitimate, valid question. And I think something that is so helpful to understand this is to go to Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9. Let me read to you what's happening here. This passage blows my mind. I think it's really amazing what's happening here and, and really helps us to see Scripture in a certain way. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, Jesus asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He, Jesus, answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed the man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That was referring to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 what Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Akiva were discussing in the Talmud. Same verse. Okay? Pharisee said, yeah, we just write our certificate, and that's it. Jesus said this, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, just let this sink in for a moment here. 
this is, this is really crazy here because we have this tendency to be legalistic and say, oh, the law, the Old Testament, God wrote it, then therefore it's got to be exactly what God wanted. Jesus is saying here, God wrote you this commandment that you can write a certificate of divorce to your wife because of your hardness of heart. Because you guys were making such a mess of marriage. You were taking such advantage of the wives. They had no uh, uh, safety net in society. Fine. That's what you want to do? Okay. I'll write you this command. You can write a certificate of divorce. I'm going to set this up as a regulation to provide some means of formality for these women to be able to protect themselves in society through this certificate of divorce and not just suddenly be lost out there being called an adulterer or, 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 or this or that. He did that because of the hardness of heart. Jesus is saying, don't mistake that as God's ideal. But what was God's ideal? Jesus says, let's go back. You want to know what God's ideal is? We're going back to Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall, before sin came in and messed up society so that there were broken and fallen cultures in society. Before that, God's original design was that the two shall come together and they shall be one flesh and those two should not be separated. Oh, Pharisees, you are aiming so low. She made your dish salty? Are you kidding me? You're destroying what this was meant to be. The beautiful unity and oneness that was supposed to come out of marriage. You're destroying because of your lust or your selfishness or your unwillingness to be a servant to your wife. We need to go back to the original design. Now that, with that in mind, that sheds a lot of light on Ephesians 5, the passage that William Barclay was talking about earlier that is very similar to Colossians. Let me read this. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 1 again, right? This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, based on this Jesus principle, what is marriage about? What is marriage about? We go back to Genesis 1. What is marriage about? In Genesis 1, before the fall, before sin messed up society, when a husband and wife come together, when God instituted marriage, that in the sovereignty and, and, and preordination of God was meant to be a visual display to the world of Christ's covenant love for the church. That is what marriage is meant to be. It is meant to be a living, walking demonstration of Jesus' love for the church and the church's honoring and respecting of Jesus. It is supposed to demonstrate that to the world around us. Brothers and sisters, we only have, if you're married, if you get married 20, 30, 40 years, God willing, of marriage. And then in the Bible it says, in heaven there is no marriage. We only have a little bit of time in this world, in our marriage, to reflect the covenant love of God in such a way that the world sees the beauty of the love of God for the church. When a husband loves his wife and lays down his life for her, 
and, and puts her needs above his own and dies to himself and dies to his pride, dies to anger, dies to selfishness, but, and focuses instead on lifting his wife up and putting her needs before his own, he reflects to the world what Jesus did for us when he came down from heaven, took on human flesh, was nailed to a cross, and gave his life, shed his blood so that the church could have life. That was the love of God that husbands are demonstrating in a small, imperfect shadow of a way to the world when we love our wives in that way. When wives come alongside their husbands and take them by the arm and say, I will respect you and I will honor you and I will uphold and lift up the leadership that God has placed upon you for this family, to lead this family in a direction of spiritually loving God, we, the, we, the wives are reflecting to the world what the church does and saying, I trust Christ, I trust my Savior and I trust Him and I will follow Him because I know that He is leading me down the right path for the glory of God. This relationship, that, it's not about us. It's not about men and women, husbands and wives. At the end of the day, it's not about us. It is about, it is a living, breathing demonstration of God's covenant love. When the world looks at a marriage that is beautiful in this way, they're supposed to say, wow, your marriage is so beautiful. What, why? What is this? What may, how'd you been, how have you been doing this for 40 years like this? We point them to Jesus. We say, you think this is something? This is nothing. You ain't seen nothing yet. Look at what, my sa- look at what Jesus has done. Look at the covenant that God has, has invited us into. That's what marriage is about. Let me be very clear on this. So when the Bible says, husbands love your wives. That's the easier part for us to, to handle. Wives submitting to the husband. That's the harder part. Let me be very clear. A wife submitting to her husband does not mean several things. It does not mean men are smarter or more capable than women. Women are CEOs. Women can be, head of, women can be heads of state. And society has already made it very clear to us that husbands and dads are the doofuses, actually, of the relationship. They have already made that very, very clear to us that we are the ones that say the ridiculous things. It's not about competence or capability at all. Um, when, uh, it does not mean when wives submit to their husbands, it also does not mean that husbands have all the rights when it comes to sex, that it is on demand for them. Look at what 1 Corinthians 7 says. It's so different. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It is a picture of mutuality, of nobody taking advantage of the other person or or abusing authority over the other person. There is a mutuality here. In Ephesians 5.21, just a few verses earlier than marriage, it says here, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is, a, there is an overarching submitting to one another that should be the culture for all of Christianity and especially for marriages. And you know what, what that means? That means is oftentimes, and this is true story here, true story, oftentimes in my marriage with Christine, I will say, you know what, honey? I think you are absolutely right. I think that that is wisdom from God. I think God is speaking through you and that's the right thing and we're going to go with, with what you think. There is a mutual submission there as well. 
within God's design for husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands. It is very different than the abuse that we often see in this world. Now, for husbands, it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this is so important because if, if husbands are not loving their wives, this does set up a system for abuse. In fact, that's the question, right? And the objection. Doesn't this biblical teaching, doesn't this set up a system ripe for abuse? And if the husband's not loving his wife, it does. It absolutely does. And ads like this from the American past don't help, right? Where it really, this, this false abusive sense of what it means to be the husband is, is, is received and digested and lived out. And it is so wrong. It is so not the biblical perspective. It also doesn't help women when we see news like in the past, this past week about the Southern Baptist Convention and how many people, hundreds of ministers were accused of abusing their victims. Now, to be fair, there were women abusers in there as well, but the large majority were men, and that does not help the cause as well of Christian men. Certainly, abuse is possible. This is why it is, we cannot separate out the fact that husbands are to love their wives. John Stott, the late John Stott, he said this, a husband should never use his headship to crush or stifle his wife, or frustrate her from being herself. His love for her will lead him to an exactly opposite path. He will give himself up for her in order that she may develop her full potential under God and so become more completely herself. That is the role of husbands. I believe that there are two major reasons why God's design for marriage is so difficult for women to accept. Two major reasons. The first one is this. Men are not doing their part in biblically leading their families. They are not doing their part in biblically leading their families. If a wife is supposed to submit to her husband's leadership and honor that, but the husband is not even reading the Bible or praying and not pursuing God, that's like the husband is asleep at the wheel and the wife is going to watch him drive her and the kids off of a cliff, spiritually speaking. What a raw deal! What a raw deal for wives if husbands are not pursuing Christ with every ounce of their being so that it is very clear that they are pursuing Christ and that they are going to lead the family towards loving Jesus. If they're not doing that, what a raw deal. And the second thing is this. I believe that the second biggest reason why it's so difficult for so many women to accept is because men, husbands, are not laying down their lives for their wives. Why would a woman want to submit to a man who doesn't lay down his life for her? Why should she trust this kind of a man? Why should she trust him? That he really cares about her and is really going to have her best interests at heart and is really going to be thinking about who God wants her to be. Why would any wife want to follow a man like that? Rebecca McLaughlin, in the book, uh, her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Difficult Questions for the World's Largest Religion, she said this, she, she, put, she put it this way, Indeed, when I trained my lens on the command to husbands, the Ephesians passage started to come into focus. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, by giving himself naked and bleeding to suffer for her, by putting her needs above his own, by sacrificing everything for her. I asked myself how how I would feel if this were the command to wives. Wives, love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. Ephesians 5.22 is sometimes critiqued as a mandate for spousal abuse. Tragically, it has been used that way, misused that way. But the command to husbands makes that reading impossible. How much more easily could an abuser um, twist a verse calling his wife to suffer for him, to give herself up for him, to die for him? Let me just emphasize it again. But the command to husbands makes that reading impossible. Impossible. If a husband is truly seeking to lay his life down for his wife, he will not abuse her and take advantage of her. In fact, he will lay down his wife for his life for his wife. That's a tongue twister this morning. You know, um, it's it can be challenging and difficult, and I don't want to make light of it. it. It can be challenging for wives sometimes to say no to themselves and to honor the leadership of their husbands. But husbands, we are called to say no to ourselves daily. That is what we are supposed to be doing. We say no to ourselves daily. We die to ourselves in order to lay down our lives for the sake of our wives and to love them as Christ loved the church. I'm going to close here. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. Um, And I want to close at this time with a story that... uh, the late James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, one story that he told about Cyrus, king of Persia. He said this, The full measure of Christ's love for the church was his dying for her. We are told in one of the Greek histories that the wife of one of the generals of Cyrus, the ruler of Persia, was accused of treachery and was condemned to die. At first, her husband did not know what was taking place. But as soon as he heard about it, he rushed to the palace and burst into the throne room. He threw himself on the floor before the king and cried out, Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. Cyrus, who by all historical accounts was a noble and extremely sensitive man, was touched by this offer. He said, Love like that must not be spoiled by death. Then he gave the husband and wife back to each other and let the wife go free. As they walked away happily, the husband said to his wife, did you notice how kindly the king looked at us when he gave you the pardon? The wife replied, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. That is the picture the Holy Spirit paints for us in this great chapter of Ephesians. And I would say Colossians as well. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Voice goes on and he adds something here that I think is very important to keep in mind. He said, in fairness, let me say this to husbands. Most of us will never have a chance to put love to that great and ultimate test. But we do have countless lesser ways to show our love daily. One wife rightly told her husband, Dear, 
I know that you are willing to die for me. You have told me that many times. But while you are waiting to die, could you just fill in some of the time helping me to dry the dishes? Dying to ourselves and laying down our lives for our wife is not just a flash of glory thing, although it is that. It is in the daily, every day, saying no to ourselves, submitting our desires before the Lord for the sake of loving our wives. Brothers, you know, my prayer for the husbands of Renewal Church is that we would not need to convince our wives that God's design for marriage is good, but that our wives would know it through their experience of the way that we treat them. That they would know it intuitively. Not just theoretically, not just in terms of knowledge, but through experience. That this is what it means to be loved. This is a picture of Christ loving the church in the big ways as well as the small, in the dramatic as well as the mundane. Husbands and wives, we have only a few years in this world to display to this world the awesome covenant love of God. It doesn't just happen here in the church. It happens in our daily living and being in our most intimate of relationships. To the single men of renewal, I want to say this. You know, that ideal of of loving your wife, maybe you're excited about that. I'm glad you're excited about that. But I want to say that you're not suddenly going to start laying down your life for your wife or leading her towards Christ in that way once you get married, if you're not doing it now. If you want to be the type of husband that the Bible talks about, it means starting now with a life that is so focused on pursuing Christ and making Christ your all in all that it will flow out of the way that you treat your wife and treat your children in the future. It begins now, becoming a God-centered man. To the single women of renewal, I would say, do not settle for anything less than a man that is pursuing God in that way now. Don't look at the other things. Does he fear the Lord? Does he place Christ at the center? If he does now, then there is great hope that he will in your marriage and in your family as well. Let's stand and let's enter into a time of prayer and worship right now, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters of Renewal, I want to challenge you this day as we continue thinking about Colossians. Is Christ flowing out of your life into the most intimate parts, into the places where you spend the most time, where people see who you really are? Let it flow into your workplace in the way that you are an employee, in the way that you are a manager. Maybe today, There's a conviction. Man, I need to really be a better employee, one that brings honor to Christ. Maybe there's something within you that says, you know, I haven't been treating my direct reports that well. I need to treat them with kindness and fairness and justice. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe children, you need to renew your desire to obey your parents and and to ask God to help you to really see that you're pleasing Him as well. And parents, are we really focused on raising children in the Lord or have we gotten sidetracked into getting them into the best college and and having a, a healthy, wealthy, successful life in the eyes of the world? Has that become our motivation? 
or in our marriages, brothers and sisters, are we men loving our wives? Are we saying no to ourselves and lifting them up? And wives, are we lifting up and respecting and honoring the leadership of our husbands? Let, let's, let's come before the Lord this morning. Can we, can we say, Holy Spirit, flow in me. Let Christ be my all and in all. Flow through me into every part of my life. And not just here in this room on this Sunday at church, but when I leave this place, when I go home tonight, when I interact with my spouse or my kids, when I go to work on tomorrow or Tuesday, that, that Christ is going to flow through me. You're going to flow through me. Can we just come and can we just ask God and, and just make that our prayer. Jesus, flow through me. 